to episode 230 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and Abir Mukherjee, award-winning writer and a fellow podcaster, which does make me a bit nervous, is making a return visit to the podcast to talk about The Shadows of Men, his, the fifth in his series featuring Captain Sam Wyndham and Sergeant Surin Banerjee, set in Calcutta in the early 1920s. Welcome back, Abir. It's an absolute pleasure to be back, Nancy. Thank you so much for asking me. Um, yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it? It's been a good couple of years. I was one. I was wondering what happened. Why haven't I heard from Nancy in a, in a while? And yeah, and I thought, oh, I haven't actually written a book, so that's probably what it was. Well, you've written three since the last. Oh well, time we that, spoke. there's no excuse, Nancy. There's no excuse at all. Then. It's on me. It's on me. Yeah. I I I will <laughs> uh, bear the brunt of this one. <laughs> the Shadows of Men opens with Surin, who seems to have aged out of his Surendanaut sobriquet, which I think is great, uh, admitting that while he's not innocent of the events he's about to explain, he's not guilty of all of which he is, ex- of which he is accused either. And this is after reflection on his partner, Sam, of whom he observes, and I'm quoting, he is still just an Englishman. His life like that of all his kinsmen in India, progresses with an unhindered serenity. Even the lowest of them glides along with the air of those born to rule, not their own country, but ours. So this is kind of it in a nutshell. Um, You better take that. It could be important, Nancy. No, it's a telemarketer in New York. Oh, in that case, certainly don't take it. This unless, is unless you need more home insurance, in which case, feel free. Oh, no, for, for <laughs> us, it's been uh, extension of car warranties. Oh, I see. Well, that's, that's always good, isn't it? So this is kind of it in a nutshell, though. You know, India is chafing at the Raj and is moving beyond a smolder and entering into something more incendiary. And, and that movement and the British reaction is at the heart of the story, as it's told through Banerjee trying to clear his name after being charged with the murder of a Hindu scholar and hold the thought about the Hindu Hindu scholar until later. We're going to talk about him. Fair enough. (laughs) Uh, So is that sort of an accurate thing about what The Shadows of Men is about? Absolutely. Absolutely. On on one level, it is, uh, it's 1923. Um, Sam and Surin have been together for five books now and five years. Um, Surin has, as you say, he has he's gone from being happy to be called Surendranath, because uh, his name is Surendranath, but obviously, you know, the British being the British can't pronounce a name longer, a foreign name longer than one syllable. So he's known as, he was known and is known by his superiors as Surendranath. Uh, but over these five y- books and five years, he's grown up, he's matured quite a bit. Uh, he's starting to question pretty much everything about his role in the in, in the, the regime that the British run in his country. And he's already sacrificed a lot. You know, he, he's estranged from his family because um, of his wish to be a detective and, and because he serves the British. And now he finds himself uh, accused of this murder uh, and, and he's not quite sure what to do about it. Um, so on one level, you're absolutely right. This is a book about, um, you know, uh, Surin being accused of a murder and Sam and him trying to find the, the guilty party and extricate Surin from this situation. Um, 
And on another level, it's really my take on um, what's happening in India right now, which is the, the rise of Hindu nationalism, um, which I think it's, it's analogous to what we're seeing in America, in Britain, in Europe. It's the rise of populism. It's the angry majority hitting out at the minorities, um, just as we see it in, in Britain through Brexit and, and this sort of backlash towards immigrants. We're seeing it in America. We're seeing it in Europe. You look from France to Poland to Hungary. In all of these places, there's this new nationalism. Um, and it's happening in India with this um, Hindu nationalist government uh, really pushing the agenda of hardline Hindus as opposed to being a secular democracy, which, it, which India was founded as. Um, and so it, it's my reaction to that as well. It's it set at a time of Hindu-Muslim um, violence in 1923. Uh, and the point that I was trying to get to, you know, allegorically was that um, that doesn't help anybody. A house divided can't stand against itself. And, and you know, the, this internecine uh, factionalization or polarization, which we're seeing in India, which we're seeing in America, who does it actually help? It doesn't help the people of these countries. It helps external forces who wish them ill. Um, and, and that was really the subtext of this book. So in this novel, uh, you toggle between two points of view, Sam's and Surin's, and they're both told in the first person. So uh, first of all, I'm in awe of writers who can do this because they have to live in the heads of two distinct characters. So is this the first time you've taken this approach and was it difficult? It and did you feel an insipid multiple personality disorder coming on? Well, well let's, let's take that. That's a really good question. Um, and I would say uh, it is the first time I have written from more than one point of view. Um, and you're right, there is a bit of multiple personality syndrome there, but it's it's the other way around. You know, these two voices are always in my head, the British side and the Indian side. Growing up between these two cultures, you know, you know, growing up in Britain, in Scotland, but of Indian parents, I've always had these two narratives. So, you know, when I started writing, it was putting those narratives on the page. So it was it was the other way around. It was the split personalities that found their way onto the page. You're already right? schizophrenic. Absolutely. I am culturally schizophrenic. And I think a lot of people, uh, you know, who are born between cultures um, often are. And I think I think that's a really good way of putting it. Cultural schizophrenia. <laughs> and, and hopefully, you know, um, you know, writing them down on the page is a form of therapy for me. So Sam and Surin find their way to Bombay in this book. And, and I appreciated uh, their observations about the difference between the two cities, because especially from an American's perspective, you know, it's sort of like India is, is this monolithic thing and there's, there's no difference between any of the, you know, my, I haven't been, my, my daughter and son-in-law have been, and, and, and my daughter Logan was saying, you go five miles and it's completely different. Yeah, um, yeah. So I would imagine, though, uh, between uh, Bombay and, and Calcutta, there, there's a bit of a cultural rivalry uh, between the denizens of each. And I saw it sort of as a Los Angeles-San Francisco kind of divide. You know, the very good. You know, Los Angeles is, is commercial and soulless. And, you know, Bombay has, 
like like Calcutta, big city with no center. And Bombay is this like, little gem to the north. So am well, I insane? I would put it the other way around. Uh, and, and in terms of cultural, um, let's call it competition, you know, there really isn't one because, you know, Calcutta is far superior to Bombay in terms of culture. No, I can't say that. Um, but but there, there is a truth to what you say. And, and when you go back to that time in particular, I think nowadays, you know, Bombay is brash and it's sophisticated. It's the commercial hub of India. Um, and and it's, it's a beautiful city in many respects as well. I mean, after Miami, I think Bombay has the second most number of art deco buildings of any city in the world um and calcutta is almost from another age in that it's it's it feels like it's a hundred years behind bombay these days it feels like a bit of a backwater um but a hundred years ago it was very different in, uh, calcutta was the richest city in europe uh, in 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 asia sorry and it was the cultural center of india and to an extent it still is today um the rivalry and there, the problem is there's never really been a rivalry other than on commercial levels because and and you know nowadays you know Bombay is so far ahead in that respect that I don't think you know there ever is a competition. Um, whereas on the cultural side, um, Calcutta is still home to the vast majority of all of India's Nobel Prize winners. So um, yeah, <laughs> we've got nothing else, but we still have we have culture. Um, if you go to the airport in Calcutta and you look up at the ceiling, you'll see that it's covered in handwriting. And that is the handwriting of Rabindranath Tagore, who is the first non-white uh, recipient of the Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, and the text was in Bengali, it was Gitanjali. That was the text that he won it for. Uh, and it's the writing from that book. Um, so that, that's how seriously Bengalis, Cal Calcuttans take their, um, their culture. Um, I've said it before, Calcutta is the only city I know where there was a riot because the book fair finished a day early. Um, and that doesn't happen in many places. <laughs> but there you are. Although it might happen now that they've extended uh, Bloody Scotland an additional well. day. If they ever go back to two days, I, I, see, I see the potential for riots. Well, I, I'm seeing the. I'm, I'm wondering how we're going to survive three days of drinking. That's that's my concern. I'm looking forward to it, but I'm going to be in such a mess by the end of that third day. <laughs> I might end up in. <laughs> I'm always intrigued, uh, and this is something. This is sort of an aside. I'm always intrigued. He wrote a book that crossed the bridge between the UK, uh, between Scotland specifically, and uh, the United States, and other. Scottish writers have done that, Val McDermott, and I would love to do a panel on that specifically, just because that's, I, well, I have to think, I have to think there's such a huge contingent of, of fans of Scottish crime fiction in California. And well, I throw my hat into the ring for that as well, because the book I'm writing right now is uh, a modern day thriller set mainly in America. Uh, it starts off with a wee bit of London, but most of it is from Oregon all the way through to my uh, to Florida. Um, so if it, if, it, if it gets written in time, I would love to be on that panel too. Well, if not this year, then uh, coming <laughs> I'll, up I'll the next Craig year. Robertson for a space on that panel. I, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll start. I'm going to start um, lobbying now. Yes. Um, 
and I want to talk now I'm going to talk about the the victim of the murder. So there are Easter eggs in the book and and I probably missed most of them, but I was taken in with two things in particular. The last name of the victim of whom uh, Banerjee is charged with murdering is Mukherjee. Yeah. And, and one of the cases Sam is tasked to investigate when he's forbidden to get involved with Banerjee's uh, investigation is, and I'm quoting again, the murder of an accountant in South Calcutta, where the perpetrator was clearly the wife, because, well, who doesn't marry an accountant and end up regretting it? This was funny because I know what your previous career was. So if you <laughs> want to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, you, you've hit upon two of it. And as I say, this book is, you know, all of my books are therapy for me primarily. So, so that's why these things are in. Um, the Mukherjee one, yes, the character is known as Mukherjee. Um, well, a couple of reasons. Um, I needed, I, I didn't want him to be particularly nice. And normally I name my victims after my friends. I've killed so many of my friends in novels that I'm running out of friends now. Um, but for this one, I thought, well, you know, if I'm, if I'm so mean to all my friends, I should really be mean to myself. Um, so that was the first reason. And then, then I had a lot of fun with it because there's, there's a line early on where I think, I think Wyndham describes Mukherjee as being a prize ass, uh, which, I, which I thought... That'll be a good line. And I wanted that line in, so it had to be, it had to be, you know, somebody with my name. Um, yeah, as for as for the the accountant, but yeah, that's that's one of my little jokes with my wife constantly, because um, um, you know, I'm I'm living fear of her murdering me ever since she's found out how much I'm insured for. I'm I'm worth far more dead than I am alive to her. So <laughs> it's a wonder she hasn't done it yet. Um, so there we are. Well, your son's probably really like you, so that might be part of it. Um, I follow you on Twitter, and I encourage everyone listening to do the same. And recently you tweeted about a murder by snake in mm. India, a husband who was quite determined to kill his young wife. Um, he used two snakes on two different occasions in two different locations. So... <laughs> What makes me think that a crime along these lines might make its way into an upcoming well, Sam and Soren adventure? You know, I'd love to, but I just don't know if it's, you know, this is a real case. This is the thing, you know, this is the sort of thing you can only do in real life. If you did it in a book, people would just laugh at you. And, there's, and he would have got away with it if he hadn't drugged his wife first. Um, so essentially they caught him because, well, well the story for, for your listeners, your viewers who haven't seen it, um, essentially this um, gentleman in India, uh, I think he comes from quite a poor family, but he married into a rich family. It was an arranged marriage. Um, and um, he then decided he would, he'd rather like that money for himself, uh, despite having you know, been given a house and a car and everything else in terms of dowry. He decided he was going to kill his wife. And um, I didn't know this, but hundreds of people each year die in India from snake bites. So, you know, you could get away with it. Who knows how many of those actually are murders? You know? um, but this guy, this guy um, wasn't the brightest. So he tried it once in his own house um, and it didn't work for whatever reason. I think his wife woke up and saw the snake and got rid of it. Um, so the next time he tried to do it in his mother-in-law's house, oh no, no, what happened was she was bitten the first time, but it wasn't fatal. Um, so she went to hospital and then when she was recovering, she was recovering in her parents' house. So he then went to his in-law's place 
and thought, well, what did I get wrong last time? Um, she reacted to the bite. So he drugged her drink. And then once she was drugged, he did it again. Um, but he forgot to get rid of the glass. And that's how they caught him through the sort of forensics of that. So, yes, I would love to do it, but I don't know if, you know, but I don't know if it's believable in a book. That's the problem, you know. Well, it sounds I, like something out of James Bond. But I do want to add that a murder or attempted murder by snake is not confined to India in the past or, or the present. Oh. And, and this happened here in Los Angeles in 1978, uh, Sinanon, which was sort of a cult in Santa Monica, uh, put a rattle, uh, followers of Sinanon put a rattlesnake in the mailbox of, a, of Paul Morantz, who was an attorney who specialized in legal cases that involved brainwashing by cults and self-help groups. And the snake bit him and he got quite unwell. And, and oh, wow. a lot of, not a lot of people die of rattlesnake bites, uh, but enough get bit and have to, you know, all the hospitals here uh, near where I live, I live in the hills in Los Angeles, and there's you see rattlesnakes, you hear them, uh, especially in the spring and in the wow. fall. And all hospitals and EMTs carry uh, rattlesnake wow. antivenom because people get bit. And the cobra is a snake of choice in the recent case in India. It just sounds a little bit more menacing than a quotidian rattlesnake. In writing Sam and Sir and Mysteries uh, is far from the extent of your creative brief. Uh, you are a principal in the Red Hot Chili Writers podcast, which is very, very good and often makes me feel quite inadequate. Oh, don't be silly. So do you like podcasting? Do you like it more than writing? <laughs> Do you know what? I, I, I love our podcast um, for, for your listeners. Our, ours, I mean, we deal with, with books and with current affairs and with media uh, from a sort of British Asian perspective. But we always have writers or other people on. Uh, and it's myself and another writer called Vaseem Khan, who writes uh, a couple of series set in India, um, the Baby Detect uh, Ganesh Detective series. Uh, and he has a new series out with a detective called Persis Wadia. Um, and it's it's great it's great fun. Uh, we've been doing it for over two years now. Um, originally, we were recording from my mum's kitchen um, because and and but because of lockdown, we ha we've had to go away from that format. We do it all remotely now, um, which is or is better for mum because she doesn't have to make as much food for us. Um, and to be honest, I enjoy podcasting because I don't have to do very much work. Vasim is the one who puts in 95% of the effort. Uh, he's the organized one. He's the one who, you know, gets the questions ready. Um, I'll book the occasional guest um, and then I'll just turn up and waffle, whereas Vasim will do all the work. So, yeah, it's, it's, re it's great. I love podcasting because I don't have to do very much. I just sort of rock up. Um, so, yes, it depends on how you, you're doing your podcast. When you have a dependable soul alongside you, it's a doddle. I think he has a slightly different take on it from me. Well, you guys seem to have a lot of fun. So that's, that's the most important thing. I think fun has to come through. Otherwise, it's it sounds like drudgery and a drag. And Absolutely. nobody, Absolutely. you know, there's enough of that in life. No one really wants to listen to that oh, voluntarily. Exactly. Absolutely. And and that's we try and make it fun. And we've had we've had um we've been very lucky in in our guests. We've had people from you know big names from here and, and America. We had Dean Kuntz on earlier. 
this year. And he he wrote to us saying, you know, in, in all the years that he's been writing and being interviewed, he had so much fun on our podcast, probably because we, we christened him Uncle Dinesh. Uh, and he quite liked that. So he's now Uncle Dinesh to us. Um, he's now our Asian uncle. So he's he's quite happy. He's going to come on next year again with his new book, he said. So we're, we're looking forward to that. Well, you know, you are competition for me. So, but, but well, I think well, I'm, I'm of the mind that the more out there yes. talking about books and, and uh, crime, in we my case, crime fiction, it's the better. Yes, I, absolutely. And, and we're not competition. We're your acolytes. We are, we are, we are, you know, following in your footsteps and learning and we're nowhere near your standard. You're too kind you, with this, with it, with the total UK uh, uh, politeness and <laughs> Not at all. self-deprecation. I do appreciate it. I do. I do. So two more questions. Sure. You recently replied, replied to Sean Cosby's tweet, uh, Sean Cosby, the writer of Razor Blade Tears, um, most recent book, uh, Sean Cosby's tweet about cricket blowing up on Twitter. Uh, which I'm going to guess has to do with the India-Pakistan match, since such a game is way, way more than just a game. Uh, Americans have embraced soccer, which is football, to the rest of the world. We have our own version of football. Mm -hmm. But cricket is maybe a bridge too far. And so what should we know about cricket that we don't? The first thing to know is that cricket is the most excellent sport in the whole world. and you know, so there, it is the it is the um, it's the pinnacle. When when done properly, it is the pinnacle of time wasting and multitasking. So so the the pinnacle of cricket, real cricket, lasts five days. It's called a test match, and half the time after the five days, it ends in a draw. Um, or more often than not in Britain, half of it's rained off because you, can, you know five days of no rain in Britain is like a miracle. Um, so yes, the, the pure form of cricket is, is called the test match and it's five days long. And the great thing about watching a test match is um, you can do something completely different at the same time because something interesting will happen or, or approximately every hour and a half. So you can read a whole book you know, while watching a test match and really not miss any of the action, um, which is very civilized, I think you'll find. And that's that's the, I suppose it's the opposite of, you know, the American got to pack as much entertainment into 26 minutes before the adverts come on. Um, and it's it's the other end of the spectrum. But I'll be honest, cricket is, is changing. While we still have the five-day game, um, we then... We now have the one-day game, which is fifty overs, um, and that's where you know ridiculous. You play you play the whole a whole game of cricket in a day, and so, and now um, because it's such a big thing in places like India, we have you can you can actually have games of cricket which last half a day, which is ridiculous. I mean, what can you do in half a day? Nothing. Um, but this latest uh, this latest format is called the T Twenty, which is essentially twenty. 20 lots of six balls each each side. Uh, so it's only 120 balls are thrown by each side, um, which is very entertaining because um, you, you just end up, it becomes a bit more like baseball where you're just aiming to hit things out of the park. 
Um, and, and some of the skill involved, in, it's a different skill, but some of the skill involved in surviving a game for five days without get, dying of boredom uh, is lost on these modern players and, and watchers of the game. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would heartily recommend cricket to all Americans who want to understand um, how something can last five days without anything much happening. Um, but if you've grown up in parts of Scotland, you'd probably be used to that anyway. So that's all I would say. When I was uh, editor at the Los Angeles Times Magazine, we did a story on local cricket, of which there is some because there are many people uh, of uh, South Asian descent here and Caribbean islands and one or two from Great Britain and the UK and Ireland. So uh, it, it, they don't do test matches here. They, they do the, the one day matches. Yeah. And, and it was an interesting article. And I got hate mail. <laughs> you got hate mail? <laughs> From the readers saying, nobody cares. Oh, you see, this is, you've, you know what, that's just, Nancy, you've got, you, you did your best, right? You know, it's, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. These things take time. Um, and, and that's important, but you, you're trying. And the thing is, the thing to remember is uh, when you go to cricket in places, my wife is South African. So if you go to watch cricket in South Africa or New Zealand or Australia, a lot of the time it's it's a family outing. So you, you basically have a braai, like a barbecue at the cricket pitch um, while international test cricket is going on. They've got bits that are roped off where people can have picnics and barbecues and stuff. And it's, it's a lovely, lovely atmosphere. Um, it's not exactly high adrenaline for most of the time, but it, it's a very civilised sport. It's the sort of sport that Sting would have played uh, in an Englishman in New York. You know, if you, when you can picture him, he was probably on his way to a cricket match if he could find one in New York in that song. I have told okay. Sean Cosby that we are going to get him to a cricket match if he ever comes over here. Um, he should do. Yeah. And, and um, whiskey. We, have a, we have a whiskey and bourbon challenge as well, which we're going to sort out, depending on who goes where first. Mm, and you should add rye to that, I think. Oh, rye is nice. getting very big. Ah. And, you know, maybe, can you know, it's a little touch of Canadian in there. Well, I will definitely give it a shot. As you can see, uh, I've had to move half of my books because my whiskey um, collection's getting out. I'm the worst author in the world. I, you know, my books are in boxes, but my whiskey is out on the shelf. That's important. Uh, <laughs> we're going to do this to you. You were saying earlier how uh, if you hosted a panel at Bloody Scotland, we might not understand your accent. I think if we fed you enough whiskey, you'd be speaking like us. So don't worry. <laughs> So this is this is the last question. Now that we've sort of sorted cricket, I don't think, was, I don't think I've answered any of your questions yet. You've answered I? all of them, and it's it's more of a discussion than a question. Good, good, good. good. It's not an interrogative. It's a, it's a, <laughs> there are leading questions. So, but the cricket and the snakes are sorted for now, and and but this is going to be a very tricky question to answer, uh, and not drop a whopper of a spoiler for the shadows of men. <laughs> which is what's next on the agenda for Sam and Surin. Now, you, and this would be a good time to talk about what sounds like a standalone that you've written. Yes, well, well, there's two halves to that. I mean, I'd, I'd written these five books and I did want to take a break from um, Sam and Surin. I always would go back to them. I knew I was going to because I've got another 20 years worth of books and history to cover before the British leave India. So, um, yeah, I was going to come back. But I thought now was a good time 
to try and write other things because I, yeah, I think after five books, I wanted, to, I mean, I was always trying different things. So book four, Death in the East is the first time I, I look, I use two timelines. It's the first time I've written that. Uh, the Shadows of Men is the first time I've written from two points of view. So each book I do try and push myself to try something new, but I felt it was time to write something completely different. Um, so I'm writing a, a present day thriller. Um, I say present day, it's actually set slightly in the future. It's set in the run up to the 2024 presidential elections, um, but it, it revolves, it's not political, it revolves around issues of radicalization and polarization and all of the things that are upsetting me right now. And, and really it's the same themes, themes that I cover in most of my books. It's, um, uh, and it's intolerance and all these things. And, and that's what I wanted to look at, but I wanted to look at it in a more um, up-to-date and uh, a more pressing way. Uh, so this, this is a tale that's gonna be set starting in the UK, but 90% of it is in America. Um, and that should be out in 2023. Um, I'm really looking forward to it because I've got a, a different American publisher for that and a, a different editor. Uh, and every conversation I have with him is, it, it's like, you know, bombs going off in my head, ideas that I've never thought of, or, you know, I feel I'm, I'm developing as a writer. So that's coming next. Um, but I do have a contract for another Sam Wyndham book. Um, and without giving away spoilers, you're right. I've, I've sort of painted myself into a corner at the end of book five. Um, and I wanted to do that when I was writing it. I, I knew I'd be making a mistake doing what I was doing, um, but I wanted to do it partly to see how I'd get out of it. <laughs> um, and, and I've come up with a way of getting out of it, I think. Um, so you've left the breadcrumbs into the uh, labyrinth that you created at the end of the book? I hope so. I hope I can do it. I mean, in my head, I've sort of worked out a way that I can get them back, uh, get them, you know, back on track. Um, but I'm not sure yet if it's going to work. I haven't started writing it. In my head, I have a um, the the beginnings of a solution of of getting everything back on track. Uh, but let's see what happens. The problem is they don't do what I tell them to. They're just the I know friendly. characters. They're so difficult. Idiots, both of them. That's the problem because they're two halves of me. They're both idiots, um, and they don't listen to me. <laughs> so um, you know, one of them called me an ass in the last book. So what were you going to do? Um, so that's that's where we are. I, there will be more Wyndham um, and 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 Banerjee, and I think this will continue. But every now and again, I would like to to write a standalone or something different, um, just because I don't want to be a one trick pony. I want to be able to to push myself because if I'm not pushing myself I'm doing a disservice to my readers um you know I'm, I don't want to be one of these writers that ends up almost going through the motions or painting my numbers uh having mastered their craft over 10-15 years or whatever um I want to keep learning and especially now when I'm still very early on in my career um there's so much to learn and I don't want to I don't want to get too comfortable I don't want to um, I mean, I've been very lucky. I've, I mean, this, this series has a following in, you know, all over the world now. Well, you're doing that on your Twitter feed now. You are posting the covers of the books in Russia and Italy and uh, I guess Spain. It's in Spanish, so I don't know if it's Spain or Mexico or South America or, or, or whatever the vagaries of international publishing. 
uh, German. It, it's and the difference in the covers. And as you said, I just showed you the cover of the American edition, which is different than the cover of the UK edition. It's it's a it's sort of a fascinating journey. And and you know, interesting. What other country? What people in different countries like as their covers? The ones that always I love Japanese covers. They're very different from most. Um, and yet, you know, in the votes that we've had, uh, I think both Japanese books, the first one's lost in its in its heat. And the second Japanese book, I think, is, isn't doing too well. Up again. The first one lost out to a Ukrainian cover. And the second one is losing right now to, I can't remember where. Um, but, but different countries have different styles. The French have a very simple style in the, you know, they, I get the impression that if there's too much art on a cover, the French don't take it as seriously. Um, so the French covers are very, very minimalist. Um, but, but you know, by, by another token, the British covers, I've got like three British covers for each book, um, which shows you how fickle we are. There's one for the hardback, there's one for the paperback, and there's generally another one for like large print or this or that. Um, and that's, that's odd as well. That seems to be the most dynamic market. Well, I guess, you know, this question just came to me and usually sort of what's next is my, is my concluding question. But, you know, I, I have a, since this is my podcast, I can do whatever I want. And I have a fascination with stories set in India because I have a fascination with India. Mm-hmm. But I have to wonder, what is the American reaction? You know, I, I was lucky enough to interview Nev March, who, who wrote uh, Murder in Old Bombay, and a, a young woman whose first name is Amanda, and I'm not looking at her name, so I can't remember her last name, uh, who wrote uh, My Sweet Girl, it was set in partly in Sri Lanka. And what are, what does your American audience, how do they react to the story? Because believe me, they don't teach Indian history. Well, well, they don't teach. They don't teach it in Britain either. That's part of the problem. That's why I have to write these books. Um, it, I'll be honest. It's still a niche in America. Um, having said that, I think for the first time now, the first book is is getting a wider paperback type of audience. Um, it's been niche. I think Americans don't read particularly much historical crime fiction, and and when they do read historical, it tends to be. American centric, so the Civil War uh, and and things like that. But the the audience that I've got, they, they they seem to be, you know, really crying out for more. The the one of my favorite audiences, and coming to America is one of the things I like doing best. And I've I've been frustrated that I haven't been able to do it uh, since BoucherCon um, two years ago, which was in uh, Saint Petersburg. Uh, I I plans to come last year, and obviously those got um, curtailed. Um, but I I've been what can I say? Uh, every time I've been to America as a writer, I've received so much love from people, um, more than I receive anywhere else in terms of just the, it's just wonderful. The, the warmth of the welcome is always surprising. I mean, I expect it, but it's always 10 times more. Um, and and I think that's because Americans love their crime fiction in a way that very, very few other people do. That's why your festivals are bigger. That's why your industry for it is bigger. Um, And and so I think there's a a willingness to look at new things and there's a love of new things, Um, you know, stories that haven't been told, angles that haven't been explored. Um, And with everything, I think it takes time 
for new things to catch on. But if you've got people who are in the vanguard and who like what they're reading, um, it, it happens. It happens over time. Um, as I say, for the first time now, despite the books, the books have been out in America for about four or five years now. But now is the first time we've got sort of mass market publisher for the first book. And I think that's going to come quite in the next year or so. Uh, it won't be huge, but it'll be a lot bigger than the print runs for uh, the hardbacks. So it's I've got a, a, a wonderful audience, um, a hardcore audience, I should say. Um, and hopefully that, that love that I've been receiving from them, that will translate to uh, a bigger market. Um, and then I can afford to buy my wife something nice. That's what I'm looking forward to. You know, so Americans, please do. I've got kids. Uh, their feet are growing. They need new shoes. And my wife's been putting up with me for too long. So I need to get her something nice. So please do buy my books for no other reason than that. Well, on that note, from a veteran podcaster, um, I will say that that would be my advice to all of our listeners to buy Ebier's books, because not only does his wife need something nice that his children need shoes, but they are really, really good. And uh, they will t- take you away in time and place, like well, very few other books out there now and they're really really good and you know i think so so thank you abir that's that's really kind of no thank you nancy it's it's really kind of you to to say that it's really generous of you to invite me back on the podcast after the the horlicks i made of it last time you know you're not you're not not heard of the term horlicks have you you don't you don't have that term in america the drink yeah, well, so the drink has given name to when you when you make a mistake or you make a significant mistake. Um, the Horlicks is a nicer way of saying the the cluster F word. If you know what I mean, the the Horlicks making a Horlicks of something is a nice British expression, which means that. And, and when you think of me, think of Horlicks. There you are. <laughs> Absolutely, to do that. It's vile, and I love you so. <laughs> Thanks again, no, thank Amir. It's, it's really wonderful to talk to you. See you in your uh, well. I'm going to see your... you. I'm going to see you in bloody Scotland next year. From and, your mouth to God's ear. Yes, absolutely. I love that expression as well. And uh, I'm going to say that we will be training you in the Scottish accent, uh, one way or another. We're going to have that panel. It's well, almost the time to have a whiskey where you are. Well, yeah, <laughs> or maybe and... a double. <laughs>